This is a podcast for the Library of Economics and Liberty, econlib.org, E-C-O-N-L-I-B.org. I'm Russell Roberts of George Mason University, and my guest today is Don Cox of Boston College. Don, tell me a little bit about what's going on with your life and the economics you're learning out in the field. Okay. Well, uh, this weekend I was doing a little field work. I took my son to a birthday party. My son's two and a half, and it was Jenny's birthday party. She just turned three. It's about maybe 15 kids there, so I got to observe How many? parenting in the wild. How many kids? About 15. 15? <laughs> two to three-year-olds? Uh, yeah, and uh, okay. this is pretty amazing, actually, because there's a big, long table set up, uh, places for everyone, very highly organized, at least... That was the intent. Mm. But uh, a few things started falling apart at the seams, and the thing that stuck out in my mind was that I saw one parent trying to browbeat his crying child into eating cake, and it just didn't add up for me. Oh, that must be a first. <laughs> I I just a parent trying to trying. Con- trying to convince a child to eat cake. What was it? Broccoli cake or spinach cake? What was it the? Seemed like regular. Actually, it was uh, vanilla and chocolate cake with vanilla frosting, and it looked pretty good, but it just didn't add up. And I started thinking, okay, there's got to be a couple of economics equations that we could write down. And we could nail exactly why this really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so I started thinking about how Econ 101 just might help people become better parents by helping them think about simple ideas about incentives. You sure you want to share those with our listeners? I mean, those are pretty valuable, Don. You should be able to keep them to yourself. <laughs> should, I, should I wait and write the the child-rearing book to compete with T. Barry Brazelton or something? Maybe start a consulting firm. <laughs> Go ahead. So what do you, what do you, think, right. you, what so, do you think some of the lessons are that, we, that an economist, I mean, it sounds a little bit absurd. Let me just set the stage here. It, economists have a bad reputation, I think unfair, of course, but we have this reputation as being mainly to do, that our work mainly deals with either the stock market mm-hmm. or interest rates and the macro economy, which is very depressing because I don't think, that's economics, you know, our best uh, application. But you're now taking it to a whole other world. Where you're going to try to suggest it goes to micro, micro, little. Yeah. Pe- th- this is actually the ultimate microeconomics, yeah, little because, economics. That's little right, because the kids are small. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. Yeah, go ahead. So tell but me. But you know, I think there's even more in in the sense that not only do people have a little bit of a warped view of uh, what econ is all about. I remember in Woody Allen's college catalog, it was econ 101, how to keep a neat wallet. <laughs> but there was also the idea that I think economists have a reputation partially deserved yeah, no doubt. as being cold, calculated, Star Trekian Mr. Spocks. Yeah, that's true. That do write down a bunch of equations and it doesn't necessarily redound to the benefit of the poor little kids. 
Okay, so let's let's hear what what happened to you at the at the birthday party. You think it might be of general use to our to our, both our parent to the parents and her listening audience, as well as the children and the would be economists who'd like to see <laughs> economics expanded a bit to a slightly wider uh, audience. Okay, but Russell, you got to realize I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, okay. and uh, this is all just pure speculation. But I really do think that some basic uh, economic concepts. Uh, some buzzwords that you hear in, in economics, and yeah, maybe even finance seminars too, uh, might be useful in, say, like a parenting class. So can I give you just get one case study? Yeah, but let me go get a saw, because if you're going to go out on a limb, I want to be ready. Mm-hmm. Go, oh. go ahead. Okay, so uh, it's winter 2002. Okay. Okay, I'm at my daughter's preschool. How old is she? She's uh, three at the time. Okay. My math may be off. I could get in real trouble here. <laughs> but anyway, the deal was this. It's go-home time at the preschool in the winter. Now, the inside of that preschool is heated up to about 80 degrees because we've got a lot of warm bodies in there. And I see a parent struggling to get snow pants, dreaded snow pants, on his toddler. And the buzzword that I use uh, when I pick up my daughter in this situation, is something called incentive compatibility. Now, econ buzzword, and i got to admit that until I had to actually teach this in a graduate class, I didn't really know what it was. You know, it's the kind of thing where you go to a seminar, people say, oh, incentive compatibility, and I, I just nod my head, but I, I really didn't even know what it was until I had to teach it and look it up. So, I discovered that incentive compatibility is really pretty simple. Yeah, like most pieces of economic jargon, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, basically what it is is that I, as a parent, set up the rules so that my kid has an incentive automatically to choose what I want her to choose in the first place. So that's the buzzword incentive compatibility. It's much easier to just use an example, which is the way I approached it. And here i got to tell you, Russell, I'm just bragging about myself and, no and doubt, how yeah. smart I am. No, sure. I, I, there's no getting around it. I'm really sorry. And what a great kid you have, too, probably. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. And how dumb this other parent was. Yeah, that, that's just to wrap yeah. that in. Good. But So my idea is this. Pick her up in my right arm. Pick up the winter clothes in my left. And we go right out the door into the 30-degree cold. Beautiful. She's got an incentive to put on all those warm clothes. Easy. Now, here's where you might say, ah, the cold-hearted economist. You know, I would much rather read a parenting book by the warm, fuzzy T. Barry Brazelton than some equation-mongering, cold-hearted, ruthless, cruel... defend myself on this, I've got to give you the bottom line, which is that that kid inside in the 80-degree heat was crying. My daughter wasn't. And that parent inside the, the hot uh, preschool was aggravated. I wasn't. So the so idea here is on the higher indifference curve here. Yeah, that's right. The idea, so the idea here is pretty, pretty straightforward, like you say. The idea is that if you're going, a lot of times as parents, we want our kids to do something that they're not so eager to do. 
let's make it a little easier for them to choose either the right path or the path that we desire. We hope they're the same thing. It's an interesting, um, interesting example. I guess it reminds me a little bit of uh, It's a Wonderful Life when, when uh, George Bailey calls his kid's teacher on the phone who sends his, the kid home without a jacket and the kid gets a cold. You remember that scene? I don't. Go ahead. Well, Jimmy Stewart's on the phone screaming at the parent, at the uh, teacher. What kind of a teacher lets a kid go home without a coat? And uh, the teacher puts her husband on, says he's going to smack him in the face, which later, of course, happens. It's a lovely scene in the movie. But I I guess the issue would be uh, some parents would be nervous about that nanosecond of 30 degrees that you made your daughter endure. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the, the motivation for this horrible, traumatic experience that the kid has inside the uh the room where the role of both friction and self uh, and autonomous behavior right. coincide to uh, keep the kids saying i want to be in snow pants yeah uh but i i like your strategy i think uh a few seconds of cold there very effective i think that's a very powerful example i like i'm gonna try to think of some other cases where that might uh, come into play yeah so and 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 you know as far as the uh the matter of uh, uh, 15 seconds of exposure to cold and the and the health consequences of that, I would just leave that as an empirical question. And if it turns out that uh, that's going to really do some damage to uh, uh, my kids, then uh, I'm ready to back off of that policy in a heartbeat. Yeah. Well, most people would call that bracing or invigorating. <laughs> I think the whole... Uh don't let the kid outside without a coat thing is kind of exaggerated anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, but, and I do. I really think that's part of the problem that that screaming kid and the parent inside was, was dealing with. You got a parent who's obsessed with, with getting the snow pants on before a step is taken outside, and the result is disharmony. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of reminded, even though it's a little bit off the subject, of oh, something your father said about helmets. Yeah. What's, <laughs> what's that, Don? <laughs> Pardon me? What would that be? Uh, he said, well, if helmets are good for riding a bicycle, they'd probably be even better for riding in a car. Yeah, my dad's kind of a skeptic on the helmet thing. <laughs> he understands that there's a time to wear a helmet, right? This Again, this is an economics of parenting thing. But when I was growing up, my dad's attitude was uh, it's good to go barefoot uh, out in the backyard. It's true. Uh, there are snakes out there, but it feels good to have the grass between your toes. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a fundamental economic issue of trade-offs. Same with riding a bicycle with a helmet. We're obsessed with having our kids wear helmets on bicycles, but it does feel good to have the wind in your hair and, and uh, feeling the breeze. And we've gotten to a world now where any parent who doesn't have a kid wearing a helmet is considered a uh, irresponsible uh, drunk um, yeah. and an abuser. My dad's attitude, which I think has got a lot of merit, is, well, you know, sometimes there's, there are trade-offs. And uh, his, his, his um, reductio ad absurdum is, well – if it's good to wear a helmet on a bike, you should wear it while you're in the car. Uh, I guess you could generalize that. Just wear a helmet all the time. Uh, or maybe just, you know, walk around in a in a Hummer. Uh, you know, your child should not. You know, the Volvo was kind of an extreme of that, right? The Volvo, yeah. if you're a loving parent, you should own a Volvo because it's supposedly a safer car. Uh, of course, you know, if you spend the more money for the Volvo, you don't have money to, to maybe give your kid music lessons or enrich their lives in other ways and maybe be better off buying a cheaper car and driving more carefully. Sort of these people who are very dogmatic about these issues ignore the other margins of behavior where people can respond to the incentives and, and choose accordingly. But in the case of uh, you know, the, the safety of a child, obviously it's paramount. I'm, I'm totally, by the way, having said all that, 
about my dad, who, who who's a great dad. I'm totally paranoid about my kids riding their bikes without their helmets. And oh, yeah. I, and, no, and, I, I, I am uh, – I have uh, a lot of parental fears. I am – I'm deathly afraid of traffic and all that stuff. So let's not give uh, the folks out there the yeah, impression that we're right. totally crazy. No, that's a good point. Let's um, let's go on to another example. Do so, you have something else for us? Yeah, I'm 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 just thinking about uh, uh, a couple of other things that I've seen out in the field. So this is one that uh, I forget when this was, but it was probably around the same time, and it was uh, a mother that lived in our old condo building. And she was taking her three-year-old out on a trip, and it. Uh, so she asked him, "Jerry, you want to uh, you want to go to the children's museum today?" And the only problem was that the kid said no. And even further, there really the, wasn't even a choice. He didn't get the script. <laughs> and so we had the absurd situation where the mother has taken her child to the children's museum, and the kid just like the one having cake foisted upon him, is screaming and unhappy. And I just have this gut reaction that something's wrong. And I think what it is is that basically, you know, you don't give your kid a menu if you've already ordered what the dinner's going to be and there's no choice. Uh, and, and I kind of have a catchphrase, which is, uh, don't ask, just tell. That's very nice. I like that. Uh, and the idea is that uh, the fewer questions – I think that kids uh, – I guess it maybe depends on their age, and I'm being totally an amateur uh, empiricist here, but I think that uh, giving them too many choices might just well drive them nuts with cognitive dissonance. And if you get on a string of no's, that can easily ignite a a temper tantrum, and it might just be better to uh, not pose the false choices. Just to give you an example, uh, we go to visit my mother, pack my daughter in the car, and we're just going on a trip. And when we're halfway there, she just asks, where are we going? Going to Grammy's house. That was the plan all along. No sense in asking her what her opinion is. Um, and you see parents trying to, you know, sort of alter their children's utility functions at 7.30 in the morning when the school bus is coming. And the, the kid says, I don't want to go to school today. And they're like, oh, but... You know, you like school, your friends are there. But all, you know, mainstream economists just take those preferences as a given, at least in the short run. Um, when my daughter says, I don't want to go to school today, and she's crying, I believe her. And I'm somewhat sympathetic. I mean, I do have enough memory cells left over to at least imagine that I remember what it was like to go to first grade, uh, especially after a week Christmas vacation. Sometimes just kind of had a stomachache. Well, so I accept her utility function. But you but, don't give in to it. <laughs> yeah, the other, the other thing, though, is that uh, you've got utility functions and you also have constraints. And one of life's uh, constraints is, well, you've got to go to school. So my response is, A, I sympathize. You don't want to go to school. I can buy it. I can understand. Unfortunately, you have to. And usually that uh, that just about ends it. Well, it ends it because you don't uh, 
continue the conversation. I think the challenge for a lot of parents is they want to have a dialogue and then they want to resolve the dialogue with the kid being happy. And yeah. that often is, um, isn't, isn't possible. Just raise an interesting example though, because I think, uh, is a separate issue going on there, which is kids like to say no, and it's part of growing up. Yeah, it's part of growing up. It's part of asserting yourself, asserting your autonomy. And I think the idea of um, the idea of asking a kid what they want to do when, in fact, you're not going to let them do it because you're going to Grammys or you're going to the Children's Museum, I think is is the road to a lot of uh, you know family disharmony because there's really no point in opening that discussion. Once you open it, the kids are going to use it as a avenue for uh, discord or just you know disagreement because that is what comes naturally at a certain age uh, i think it goes from about two to 102 i think that, that we we like to do what we want to do uh part of um part of the most interesting uh to, to type move on to a slightly different issue for a moment i think one of the incredible issues of of our politics in america and in the world is that it's really fun to do what you want to do uh, unfortunately, it's also fun. I don't enjoy this, but evidently a lot of people do. It's also fun to tell other people what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you see parents, you know, parents are constantly balancing what I think are two incredibly unhealthy uh, modes. One is, I'm your friend. I'll yeah. do whatever you want. Oh, whatever you want. What do you want? Which is, I think, a very bad parenting style. The others, mm-hmm. but the equally bad parenting style is tyrant. That's right. <laughs> it's. Ah, uh, this is my chance. You know, I get pushed around at work. My friends don't do enough of what I want to do. My spouse doesn't listen to me, but I'm going to boss this five-year-old around at will. Exactly. And it, and it leads to a lot of uh, cruelty. You mainly see it in the grocery. You know, at the end of the day when somebody's shopping with their kid and they've reached the end of their rope and they're screaming at the kid and the kid's screaming back. And a lot of time what's going on there is it's just it's a battle of wills right. where the parent wants to impose their will. And unfortunately, you know, I think that sometimes leaks into the political process. You know, I don't like smoking, and so I'm going to make you mm-hmm. not smoke. Or I don't like uh, – I like to wear my seatbelts. I'm going to make you wear a seatbelt. Right. And we try to – we gussy that up with uh, – we try to prettify that, make it more attractive with, uh, you know, with altruism. But I think sometimes it's not altruism. It's not well in, well-intended desires. It's simply I like to force people to do what I like. Uh, you can see this in zoning restrictions and the way people use their houses, their lawns. It's all kinds of strange um, examples of this. Yeah, but, so in the end, it's sort of thinly veiled uh, moralizing, I guess. Paternalism of the worst kind. And that's, yeah. If you think about the word paternalism in the political context, paternalism in the political context is, is me trying to parent you. Uh, it's kind of offensive, parenting yeah. an adult. And, it, it, you know, it, it, unfortunately, it's sometimes offensive parenting a child if it's purely just so that I can boss the kid around. And, you know, just getting back to those two extremes that you mentioned, which I think is really true, the, the sort of ping-ponging between, you know, I want to be your friend and I'm a tyrant, it seems to me the real comfort zone is that you say, well, I'm not your friend, I'm your boss, but I'm a boss with this amazing propensity to say, whatever. so that some things as a boss i just kind of let slide well and you're more than just a boss you're a boss that actually we hope has the long-term interest of the employee at heart which i wouldn't expect from the average boss 
I mean, the, the, the real challenge here is when you say, what do you want to do? I want to go play in traffic. When, when we say you can't, let's yeah. move on. We're not saying that because we enjoy uh, watching people get upset that we because we control their lives. And it's not because uh, we don't uh, like people playing in traffic. It's because we love our children. We don't want them to play in traffic. About, you know, 80 percent of the, uh, you know, the, of the parental children conflict that comes about is because the short term interest of the child differs from the long term interest of the child. And we presume that children aren't very good at weighing those trade-offs. So usually the cake issue goes the other way. The kid wants the third piece of cake. We say no. The kid says, why not? And we say, well, sometimes we say because, sometimes we give a reason, sometimes we say I'm the dad, uh, and it'll be that way. But I think one of the challenges of parenting is trying to figure out strategies for minimizing that kind of conflict and getting out of negotiation mode, which is yeah, very, I, uh, no, very exactly. destructive. And, and the, uh the whole question why, I think some parenting experts say, well, you know, kids want to learn, so you should explain things very carefully to them. What I, the way I kind of handle the why question in the grocery store when my daughter wants something and uh, uh, the answer turns out to be no is I just say, well, if she says why, I say, well, I'm perfectly happy to explain why, but I've got to tell you that after our entire discussion, the answer is still going to be no. So you ready to start in? <laughs> well, so she gives up pretty fast on that. So it turns out she's not really in pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. No, it's a stratagem. And I don't want to pursue it either. <laughs> well, you know, why is the sky blue? It's actually a very difficult scientific Perfectly question. Perfectly happy to Unfortunately, dive into that yeah, one. Yeah, that's a good one. But why I can't have the fifth piece of candy or why I can't uh, stay home from school is, uh, is uh, yeah, usually a dead end intellectually. Yeah. Any other examples for me, Don? Yeah, I mean, the, the other one uh, that, that springs to mind is the uh, uh, the non-credible threat. Mm, so it kind of goes like this. You do that one more time, there's going to be no Christmas this year. And you think, hmm, can this really be credible? <laughs> you mean, you know, the six-year-old squirts apple juice in little brother Jimmy's face just one more time. All the ornaments are taken off the Christmas tree. The tree is left on the curb. Christmas lists are torn up. The stockings are taken down despite being hung with care. The stuff on layaway is just taken off layaway. Any kid worth his or her salt knows that this threat, this threat is just not credible. And... Um, you know, I, I'm just reminded of the old Henry Kissinger line, you know, never make it let that uh, you do not intend to carry out. Yeah, it's a deep, it's a deep, uh, it's a deep lesson in diplomacy and I think in parenting. I have an interesting flip side of that. I have to think about this. No Christmas, I did. Would the calendar just go from the 24th of December to the 26th? <laughs> Would you just kind of cross off two, or maybe you'd sedate the child? <laughs> <laughs> during during those that twenty four hour period, but it reminds me of another parenting issue. It's kind of strange. You ever try this one? I say, let's talk about a credible threat, not a a non credible threat. We're talking about a credible threat. Okay. So I say to my kid, if you do that, you're not getting dessert. Okay, which is a credible threat. It's not you know you're not eating for twenty four hours. You're not going to get dessert. Sometimes I impose the punishment on myself as well. So when the when I say to the kid, that's it, no dessert, and I'm skipping it too, 
What's kind of cool about that, and I got this from, uh, I heard this, I think, first from Rabbi Abraham Torsky, a uh, version of this. The, the, the cleverness of it is it does two things. One has some economics in it. One, it shows the kid that you're not doing this just out of spite, which you're not. But the kid right. might see the reality is not only is it, am I not getting dessert, but dad's eating my dessert as well. <laughs> so that is not only really is that ruled out, but I'm not going to eat any dessert at all. And what's great about what I love about that is related to another parenting lesson. And I'll bring it back full circle. When we first got married, my wife and I discussed whether we were going to hit our children. My wife said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean absolutely not? Surely there are some cases where a mild form of corporal punishment is in order. Because sometimes you need a weapon. You need an ars- in your arsenal to bring about uh, peace in the home. And sometimes saying no isn't sufficient, timeout isn't sufficient. I need to be able to ratchet it up and have that credible threat. And she said no. And I, d- I agreed with her reluctantly, but I agreed with her. And as we went through parenting, and have gone through it, I've been extremely glad that we made that decision. Mm-hmm. Not because I think corporal punishment is wrong. I think there are times when corporal punishment's a good idea. But what I love about this ban, this total ban, it's mm-hmm. always out. There's no invoking it. What I love about it is I never, ever am tempted to get take my anger out on my children and mm-hmm. rationalize it by saying, well, they deserved it. You know, it's true I gave them a whack. But, hey, look what they were doing. Yeah. So now I'm forced to confront the fact that there's no satisfaction, which is a horrible idea, but I think I see parents do it all the time. There's no satisfaction of, in, of inflicting pain on my kid as a way of making myself feel better. Mm-hmm. And the same thing's true with this dessert idea. Once I ban dessert for myself and my kid, the incentives are good, really good. So yeah. I don't have to say to myself, gosh, I'm mad at the kid for not doing what I'm doing. Oh, I'm going to take dessert away from him. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to take into account. I'm going to be taking dessert away from myself as well. Yeah. And we we had a horrible example of this once, where my kid did something that that they that they weren't supposed to do, and I said, "That's it. You're not going to the baseball game." Mm-hmm. And I thought, "What have I done?" <laughs> you know what, uh, Russell? I'm not going to the baseball game either. Yeah, and I but, stayed but you home. You know what it does? I oh, think it's it, tremendous. It it, uh, it really hammers home the old saw hurts me more than it hurts you. Yeah, I mean, no, that's the beauty it. of it. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. And that baseball game that I missed, which I really wanted to go to, was very disappointing, but we had a good time at home. Uh, not too good, because that would have, you know, <laughs> reversed the uh, right. the punishment, but I thought the lesson of we're both doing without here was very powerful. Hey, Russell, there's one thing I, I you know, before the end of this podcast, I'm, I feel bound and determined uh, a point that I've got to make, and that is... That I don't want anybody to think I'm such an econ nut that my wife and I run our house. Oh, good point. Like uh, some sort of a business. Yeah. That is um, one thing that uh, I avoid like the plague is any payments, like even allowances. I I just don't want to uh, deal with the whole concept of allowances. I don't want to micromanage my kids with any kind of cash payments because I really do believe that a family is way different from the marketplace, that a family runs on altruism, reciprocity, the spirit of pitching in, and that could be very different from uh, a market setup. And in fact, uh, I did some reading recently on uh, what psychologists call intrinsic 
versus extrinsic motivation, just, you know, sort of fancy words for uh, explicit payments versus just doing something because you think it's the right thing to do. And, and they found some very interesting experimental results. They found that uh, sometimes a small payment, a small uh, explicit uh, money payment actually sapped people's incentives to do things that they were already doing diligently as volunteers. And uh, you certainly don't want to uh, turn the family into some sort of a nickel-dime kind of uh, micromanaged incentive system. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, you could you could maybe bring in some economic uh, consultants and really uh, mess things up. Well, I think it's a great point, I, and I'm going to take the, take the opportunity to read a, uh, a short excerpt here, a couple sentences from uh, F.A. Hayek's uh, wonderful book, The Fatal Conceit. Okay. This is um, these, these couple sentences are un- unfortunately uh, deeply profound. And I say unfortunately because they're just a few sentences. Hayek fans know these sentences well, but if you don't know the work of Hayek, uh, this is sort of a, a very provocative idea. The idea is that before I read them, the, the idea is that how we behave in our family is not the same way that we behave out in the ex, what he calls the extended order of cooperation, which is the interactions we have with strangers out in the marketplace. So we go out in the world and we depend on hundreds and thousands of people for all the things in our daily lives, people that we don't know, people that we don't see. And we interact with them in a very mercenary way in certain settings. We look for a good deal. We pay uh, to motivate people. And as you say, we act totally differently in our household, Mm -hmm. and correctly so. We don't motivate our children with – some people do, but I think in general it's not a good idea to motivate our children with money. We we certainly don't rent the – their rooms out to them out of their allowance. We certainly don't sell the last uh, chocolate chip cookie to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. And I think there are profound reasons for that. But what Hayek points out, which I think is the deep insight, is that we have a natural urge to take the behavior that we have in the family setting and extend it to the larger order. Here's what he says. Okay. He says, part of our present difficulty is that we must constantly adjust our lives, our thoughts, and our emotions in order to live simultaneously within different kinds of orders according to different rules. If we were to apply the unmodified, uncurbed rules of the microcosmos, i.e., of the small band or troop, or of, say, our families, to the macrocosmos, our wider civilization, as our instincts and sentimental yearnings often make us wish to do, we would destroy it. Uh And what he's saying there is that if we took... The urge that we have to use basically love and affection, which is what how we solve disputes in our family, and we use that outside our family to a nation or to a city, we would destroy the civilization that is at the heart of our market order. And then he makes your point, yet if we were always to apply the rules of the extended order to our more intimate groupings, we would crush them. So we must learn to live in two sorts of world at once. To apply the name society to both or even to either is hardly of any use and can be most misleading. So what Hayek's saying that I think is very, very profound and very important is that the wonderful thing about a family is, is that the, the information that's necessary to make decisions about who deserves the last chocolate chip cookie or who gets to go to the movie tonight or who gets to accompany mom or dad to the baseball game or the, or the musical, 
we make those decisions very what appears to be a very arbitrary way. We never sell them to the highest bidder. We don't use the price system. We don't use markets. We use a very top-down, uh, socialistic way of deciding things. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. And I love we love our families. We have a natural, what he calls a sentimental yearning, to take that behavior and extend it to the wider civilization and endow a loving parent called a dictator with yeah. the power to allocate goods. And that crushes civilization. Historically, mm-hmm. empirically, it has led to tyranny and death. And th- that's a, a harder yearning to face. Economists have the other yearning occasionally, which is to bring the power right. of the marketplace into the house. Most of us resist that urge pretty successfully. But the other urge, the direction in the other, the movement in the other direction, from the family to the society at large, uh, that's a very dangerous urge, and it requires what Hayek calls, you know, what he's what he's talking about requires a schizophrenia of sorts. Mm-hmm. In my family, I act in a certain way. I don't try to get the best deal with my kids or my spouse. I'm constantly giving in, compromising. Whereas out in the extended order, what creates the extraordinary standard of living we have, the extraordinary qualitative and quantitative benefits of, of our wealth, which mean, which are good health and long lives and leisure, all that springs from a totally different mindset. And if we were to take that family mindset and try to extend it to that wider macrocosmos that he's talking about, uh, we would destroy it. And that's uh, something to keep in mind. And there's one other thing that I want to mention to the people out in podcast land, which is that this book... Uh by F.A. Hayek called The Fatal Conceit is a book that you have been recommending to me for at least a couple of years. It's on my list of books to read. I haven't gotten to it yet, but um, you've gotten me interested again, and I've got to I've got to get started on that soon because uh, um, I think that that the the idea that you uh, that he flushes out there is is uh, really critical, and it's actually a frontier issue um, in economic research. Uh, I think economists are are continually trying to grapple with uh, the borderlands between uh, the the sort of implicit rules of the of the small group and the and the big wide world at large. Yeah, it's a particularly relevant set of issues as we deal with. Uh some of the cultural changes and, and national uh, issues that are before uh, the world today, where culture and our religion and our our tribe and our country are all um, mixing in with our individual desires and constraints. And as economists, we would we would do well to think about to keep those in mind. Definitely. Well, Russell, I think this is uh, – I like this whole uh, application of econ to parenting. Um, well, let's see you if have anyone... roughly double the experience I do in this realm. Uh, you have four kids, yeah. I only have two. And I find it utterly fascinating, as you do. I hope our listeners find it fascinating, too. If you do find this interesting, please send an email to me, uh, Russell Roberts. It's My email address is my last name, roberts at gmu.edu, gmu.edu. Let me know if you found this interesting, and if you have any comments for Don, I'm happy to send them along. Thanks so much for joining us.